The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Today we're beginning a short four-week preaching series we're calling Gone Fishing, inspired by today's gospel reading, the story of Jesus calling the first four disciples with the promise that if they follow close to Jesus, they'll become fishers of people. I should tell you at the outset of this preaching series that I know next to nothing about fishing. If you give me a rod and a hook and a bobber and some bait, it's fathomable that I might catch some beautiful, small bluegills. I might more likely catch a tire. But when it comes to things like fly fishing, net fishing, trawling, ice fishing, and so on, I am not your guy. If Jesus called me away from my rod and bobber and small red worms to become a fisher of people, well, church, I've got to tell you, I would be doubtful of the outcome. But fishing is the metaphor Jesus employs today, fishing because it was fishing that defined the vocation of the first people called to be his disciples. And as John Calvin noted, Jesus wanted to explain their new vocation in a way that they understood. So fishing for people replaces fishing for fish. But I'm game for leaning into this metaphor a bit here. So fine, let's talk about fishing as a metaphor for life following Jesus into the kingdom of God. Welcome to Gone Fishing, a four-week sermon series about following Jesus. Today, we're going to consider this text from Matthew 4 in a sermon we're calling Fishing for Whom. Next week, we're going to hear the Beatitudes, and we'll learn just how wide the fishing nets of the kingdom are cast into the sea. And we'll hear Jesus' words about being salt and light, and we'll talk about what it means to mend our fishing nets and finally, we'll listen to some of Jesus' rules for the boat as he teaches us what it means to follow him completely. I'll thank my colleague Josh Kennedy for whipping up the delightful animation for today. With that, let's get in to Gone Fishing, week one. Church, when I was in middle school over at Longfellow Junior High School on North Chevrolet, I was not the greatest student, nor was I the most responsible homework doer. Nor was I a person who willingly put much effort into work I found rather mundane and boring. I'm not proud of it. It's just how it was for me back in the mid-1990s. It drove my mother and father nuts. And it served as a great example to my younger sister of how not to do school, which was good for her because she ended up getting all A's, blah, 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 blah. There was, however, one topic that could pull my wayward mind close. Greek mythology. I loved reading the ancient stories of gods and goddesses and demigods and wild multi-dimensional adventures of descents down into Hades and ascents up to the top of Mount Olympus. I loved tracing the wild family trees of Zeus and Hera and their warring offspring. Give me a test over Greek mythology. Make me do a presentation on a Greek god. Let me read portions from the Iliad or the Odyssey, please. During those years, Homer's epics took up a special place in my heart. I guess I found a kinship to people like Odysseus, a man who just wanted to get back to his home, back 
to his wife and his son, only to find himself thwarted again and again and again by divine forces, but also by his own humanity. One of the parts of the Odyssey that I recall enjoying was taken from Book 11, in which Odysseus is instructed that he needs to summon the shades of the underworld, Hades, to find this old, dead prophet who could tell him how he could get home which he does, but before he meets that prophet, he glimpses into the life of the underworld and sees all sorts of strange things. And one of the things that he sees in this vision is an old king, the first king of what later would become the region of Corinth. He was a man whose name was Sisyphus. He was a brutal tyrant. He betrayed his oaths And so he was doomed by the gods to spend an eternity in abject suffering. And his punishment was simple. He had to roll a boulder up a long hill. And if he could get it over the top, he could be freed. But the stone was rigged so that just as he reached the top, just as it crested the hill, the stone would slip from his grasp and crash down the hill to the bottom where he began. And again and again and again, Sisyphus was condemned to an eternity of pushing the rock to the top only to have to repeat it, world without end. Writers like Camus and others have considered this story to illustrate the pointlessness of human living, the sheer absurdity of our lives when it feels like all the work that we do just comes crashing back down and we're back to square one and no matter how much we try, we just can't break the cycle and find lasting peace. Today's reading from the Old Testament that is actually quoted in our gospel reading as well includes that memorable line, The people who have lived in the shadow of darkness have seen a great light. On those who lived in the shadow of death, a light has shined. Church, I suspect that there might be some of you, if you were asked today, how are you doing? How is life? You might answer that question in hopeful and positive language. Good, easy, No major difficulties, no insurmountable obstacles, little financial pressure, just a pretty good life. We're fine, you might say. We're making it. We're more than making it. We're doing great. And even if that's not your present feeling today, it's true that from time to time, perhaps after glimpsing the fiery entrance of a morning winter sunrise or watching a child into the world and racing the doctor to shout, it's a boy, or laughing with a friend until your side is splitting and your lungs are exhausted, the thought might slip into your mind, life is good. We know the feeling might not last, but for now, life is good. One of my favorite bands, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, write a song whose line, whose whose title is simply this, Life is Hard. And he says this in the song, he says, If the truth is to be told, let us not leave out any part. Life is hard. Some of us sing our way through life in major keys, humming anthems of the goodness of life, listening to the bright and upbeat melodies of hope and security. But others here today are whispering a rather mournful minor dirge, troubled in our hearts to even consider that life might be good. We are too preoccupied with the disaster collapsing around us to stop and see any sign 
of beauty. Like old Sisyphus, we can feel like any progress we've made in our life ends in disappointment and hurt. For many of us, life is hard. The world around us and within us seems dark, lightless, loveless. News reports confirm what we already know. More innocent people have died. More children have been victimized. More relationships have ended bitterly. More natural disasters have claimed more lives. More hurt and pain is being inflicted so casually to so many around us. We look at our medical bills and we feel hopeless. We listen to our diagnoses and we feel abandoned. We try to call our kids, but we feel discarded. We finally get a job, but we find out it's not going to be enough. We reach out to touch our spouse, only to remember that they're gone. In his song, Life is Hard, Edward Sharp sings this, do not fear. He says, it's safe to say it here. You will not be called a weakling or a fraud for feeling the pain of the whole wide world. You want help, but you can't feeling, you can't do it, and it's killing you when you just try to smile. So go on, he says, go on, say it. On the same knees, you pray it. Life is hard. Come celebrate. Life is hard. When the people of God finally captured the land of Canaan, when they finally secured borders for the 12 tribes of Israel, they divided the land up into sections. Each tribe got a portion. The two northernmost sections were given to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Geographically, it's not a terrible region. It's quite the opposite. It's next to the Mediterranean Sea on the west, Sea of Galilee on the east. The Jordan River flows down its eastern border. It is very fertile. Geopolitically, however, these lands were a nightmare. They were the farthest north, which meant they were always the first to be occupied by an invading army. Because they were on the outskirts, they were far from the capital of Jerusalem, and therefore the king and the army, they were where foreign armies would launch first strikes and where raiding parties would march. Indeed, when the kingdom of Assyria finally defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, they annexed these northern lands, and they made them part of their empire. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali were plunged into perpetual darkness, robbed of the light of their identity as God's chosen people. So when Isaiah proclaimed his good news of the child born to us, the son given to us, the one whose name would be Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Eternal Father and Prince of Peace, Isaiah proclaims it not to palaces or to princes, not to the well-off or self-motivated, but to the inhabitants of the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. We can see it right in the beginning of today's reading from Isaiah and in our gospel lesson. It's almost as if Isaiah is saying that where the darkness is felt the most, where hope is the most fleeting of things to hold to, where desperation and despair are the norms, there, Isaiah says, is where God is directing his light. Where the impossibility of illumination exists, there, Isaiah says, God will inaugurate his light-bringing project. At precisely the place where people weep with the reality that life is hard, where the yoke on their shoulders is crushing them to the ground, there God has laid the foundation of his kingdom. There he has laid the first stone. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the shadow of death, light has shined. 
Indeed, the first part of today's gospel text reveals to us that the mission of Jesus begins not on the wide, geopolitically important streets of Jerusalem, but in the rural, unimportant seaside beaches of Capernaum. It begins not in the land of Judah with mighty Jerusalem and its holy temple and royal palace, but in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, neglected lands left to the Assyrians, lands overrun and ignored. The kingdom begins not with politicians and lawyers and doctors, but with fishermen, those who barely scrape their way through life. It begins not with those for whom life was easy and carefree, but for those who were sick and injured, who've been scanning twilight's horizon in hopes that the dawn will finally break. The light of Christ shined first there, where the shadow of death was most acute, where the people celebrated life's difficulty and pain. There, the light of Christ shined. And it is there today, in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali of our world, where Christ's light is still shining most brilliantly. Ten years ago, the Guardian newspaper ran a series of articles by a guy whose name was Chris. He was a former uh, successful Wall Street trader who made millions in finance before being very disillusioned by the whole enterprise and who decided to take up the, the reins of becoming a photographic journalist in the Bronx in New York. Chris was, at the time, a self-professed atheist, someone whose education and resources enabled him to dismiss the idea of God as an irrational concept. But in the series of articles that he wrote, Chris documents the plight of the poor in the Bronx, and along the way, he finds his atheism challenged, not by priests or pastors in suburban churches filled with middle-class families, but by the poorest of the poor in the Bronx, folks whose lives are filled with addictions and hurts and betrayals and pain. Chris writes this, when I first walked into the Bronx, I assumed I would find the same cynicism I had towards faith. If anyone seemed the perfect candidate for atheism, it was the addicts who see daily how unfair, unjust, and evil the world can be. None of them are. Rather, they are some of the strongest believers I've ever met. Chris goes on to remark that some he interacted with carried crucifixes on necklaces into the brothels where they worked. Some moved portraits of the Last Supper from overpass to overpass where they lived. Some read their Bibles vigorously in between fixes of heroin. Despite the hurt inflicted upon them by neglectful parents in an unjust society, these folks looked to God not as an author of pain, but as the giver of hope as the rescuer for their distress. Far from dismissing God as irrelevant to their suffering, Chris writes that these people he met have a desperate, limitless, passionate faith and trust in the promises of God to be with them and to rescue them. The darkness of their poverty has not been dispelled or eradicated, but rather in the midst of it, they have learned how to see the light of hope, the light of Christ. Isaiah the prophet might say that to those who live in the darkness of poverty in the Bronx, light has shined. And indeed today here in our city of Flint, in the, to the homes 
of the perpetually poor, to the bedsides of the chronically sick, to the beds under which children hide in fear, to the empty cupboards of the family who don't know how to make ends meet, there Christ has called his church to action. There, the light of Christ is being directed. There, the nets of the kingdom are being thrown. There, in the outskirts of Zebulun and Naphtali of our day, Jesus is calling us to himself to follow me, to follow after him, to walk behind him, to be in such proximity to him that we end up going where he goes that we end up loving what he loves, that we end up healing who he heals, that we end up praying where he prays. To go after Jesus means leaving behind our nets, leaving behind our former way of life, our former attitudes and self-directed actions, to leave behind the notion of doing what's best for me first and what's best for others second, but looking out instead for what is best for our neighbors. Christ has called us to himself so that we might follow him as he, the light, moves to where the darkness feels acute. To go with him as he breaks the cycles of addiction and hurt. As he fills the imagination of the abused child with possibility and promise, Jesus has called us to go with him, to sit with the sick, to lift up the weak, to in his name begin to undo the tight bonds of poverty and pain which chain our neighbors to depression and grief. And he's called us from our nets to go now, today, this week, this month, this year. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will show you how to fish for people. Jesus does not say, follow me and I'll show you how to save your own soul. We are not here to follow Christ for fringe benefits, for the salvation of our own souls, for the padding of our own existence. We follow Christ so that we might learn how to journey to the darkest of places. We follow Christ to the places where the light seems faint and where hope seems a luxury. We go with Christ to the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali and we go announcing the healing, forgiving, loving, merciful, reconciling, and inviting love of God. We journey with Jesus to the Sisyphuses of this world, to those who feel doomed to a work that is pointless and painful, who feel that existence itself is a form of suffering, and we are called to show them a new way of living, a new way of working, a new way of loving, one that does not offer answers or proofs, but instead offers fulfillment, joy, and a peace that cannot be explained. So church, we go to work, to pray, to heal, to embrace, to serve. We go to love, to encourage. And by doing so, we learn what casting the nets of the kingdom of God looks like. Might it be so for us today. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. 
We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.